Um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard Pastor Michael Foster preach on Psalm 1. And uh, this week, I'm going to be preaching on Psalm 2. And we're not, we're not starting a weekly study of the book of Psalms for the next 150 weeks. We, we, we may do that sometime, I don't know, probably not likely. But um, we, uh, the, the, the Psalm 2 is kind of, you know, like a bosom buddy to Psalm 1. If you read the two Psalms, uh, one of the re- recurring themes throughout the book of Psalms concerns the differing paths that people choose in life, uh, where those paths and where those paths ultimately lead to. You know, Psalm 1 juxtaposes the differing paths taken by godly and ungodly individuals. And Psalm 2 follows up with a similar application in regards to nations. And it's in alignment with this focus on the nations that I have entitled my sermon today, The Futile Plans of the Nations. Would you please turn with me now to Psalm 2 and we will read it together. So if you open your Bibles roughly halfway and just go forward a little bit, you'll get the book of Psalms. And we're reading from Psalm 2. Now, this is a glorious, magnificent, triumphant psalm, and I just want you to savour every word. Psalm 2, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and let cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. He he shall hold them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them and, and, sorry, and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings of the earth, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. This is God's own inspired word, infallible, all-sufficient, and forever settled in heaven. Amen. Now, to start off with, we need to note that Psalm 2 is fundamentally a prophetic psalm, and it's also a messianic psalm in nature. In Luke 24, we read that how after his resurrection, Jesus suddenly appeared to his startled and frightened saints. You know, they they thought he was a ghost. So he spoke with them, he, he showed them his hands and his feet, and he ate a piece of fish just to prove he was not a ghost, it was real. And then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he appeared and he opened their understanding that they may comprehend the scriptures, Luke 24, 44. So Psalm 2 is one of those Psalms concerning Jesus the Messiah, that must be fulfilled, just like all the rest of the writings about him in the Old Testament. The writer of Psalm 2, which according to Acts 24, sorry, 4, 24 to 25, is David, starts off with a rhetorical question. 
the New, New, Living Translate New Living Translation translates it as, why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? Now, David isn't really looking for an answer here. This is more of an expression of amazement and wanting to stress a point. David seems to be astonished that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So why is he astonished? Because the kings of the earth are preparing for battle and the rulers are plotting together against Yahweh, the one who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all things in them, and who did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Acts 14, 17. And because that very same Yahweh daily displays his common grace and makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5, 45. Why then would they want to uh, bite the hand that feeds them, so to speak? Why would they despise all the good that Yahweh has done for them? And given, you know, that never, ever, ever in the human history has anyone been able to take on Yahweh, the all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent Lord of heaven and earth, and succeed, it's almost impossible to believe that the kings and rulers of the earth are setting themselves in battle array and conspiring against him and his anointed Messiah. Now, this is, you know, this is, this is just the epitome of, of madness, insanity born of the pride of the human heart. This is so irrational and senseless and stupid. You know, it's, it's a little bit like a colony of ants threatening to eat away the granite ranges of the Himalayas. This is absurd. But sadly, it's completely in keeping with the sin that lurks within the human heart. John Owen, the 17th century English Puritan, described it very well when he said this. Sin is a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and interrupts all beams of God's love and favour. When God, in the ultimate display of his love and favour and mercy, graciously gave us his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, the people flat out rejected him. When the assembled mob before Pontius Pilate were given the choice to release Barabbas, a notorious criminal, or Jesus, the anointed of God, they all cried out at once saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, Luke 28, 18, 23, 18. And in the parable of admirers in Luke 19, we see the Lord Jesus coming in, in type, returning to set up his kingdom. But the citizens cry out, we will not have this man rule over us. And this is still the attitude of most of the world's leaders and the vast part of humanity today. Instead of embracing God's loving bonds that God has established for their own good, they behave like a stubborn animal, desperately trying to break free of the cords that bind the yoke to its body. We now have global leaders who have no qualms about telling God what they think of him to his face and telling him that he will not rule over them. 
They refuse to acknowledge him. They refuse to follow his rules. And so far as they're concerned, his kingdom and his lordship are completely irrelevant. Now, one such leader who I'm about to quote to you is an advisor to a very prominent international association whose decisions affect the entire planet. This particular organisation is made up of corporations, billionaires, lobbyists who use their enormous wealth to make sure their preferred politicians get elected. The members of this utterly corrupt organisation bypass democracy and the rule of law. They collude with those to whom they've given political power in countries across the world to create wars, pandemics, so-called green transitions and leave billions of people in poverty while enriching a relatively small group of people. I think most of you know who I'm talking about. Anyway, this is what one of the organisation's leading advisors wrote in one of his books. Now, buckle up your seats. There's no subtlety here. There's no restraint here. He's pointing his finger directly in God's face. And notice just how many times he inserts the word we in every place that the word God should appear. Now, if you heard me quote this guy before, I'm sorry to subject you to this trash all over again. But, uh, quote, we, are, we no longer feel ourselves to be guests in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behaviour conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It is our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. And, you know, you would think at this point it can't get any more preposterous, but, but it does. He continues, we create the world. Wow. And because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behaviour for we are now the architects of the universe. We are responsible to nothing outside of ourselves. And listen, what he says next is a deliberate choice of words straight from the Bible. For we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Now, unquote. First time I read this, I just burst out laughing at the top of my voice. I couldn't believe what he'd said, so I read it again, and yep, he... He said it. Now, he may have felt wildly excited about getting that off his chest, but unless he repents, it will not turn out well for him. The consequences of this sort of behaviour against God and his Christ are described in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And in Romans 1.28, and even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up to a debased mind to do those things <clears throat> which are not fitting. And yet, despite such consequences, fallen man's foolish, foolish and futile rebellions against the will of Almighty God will never cease. You know, what started at the Tower of Babel will continue right through to the end. And we know that because... In Revelation chapter 19, we read about the second coming of Christ to, to conquer his enemies, to establish his kingdom. And, and the Apostle John is looking down the corridor of time and in verses 11 and 12, he writes, Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sits on him is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges 
and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head on his head were many crowns. And verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now, the mindset here is almost identical to Psalm 2.2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. So we can see that even right at the end, the punch-drunk rulers of the earth will set themselves in battle array for one last go at God and his Messiah. We move to Psalm 2 verse 4 where it records God's response to all such futile attempts at dethroning his anointed. It says, He who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Psalm 59.8 in the NLT says, But Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff at all the hostile nations. The Lord laughs at the hostility of the nations because even the most powerful nations... In Isaiah 40:15 it says are as a drop in a bucket and is counted as small dust on the scales. So far we've heard the nations speaking about their futile plans and now God speaks to the nations. Verses 5 and 6 in the NLT read Then in anger he rebukes them terrifying him with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares I have declared my, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. In verse 6, in the ESV and most other versions, it reads, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, people manage, manage to have all sorts of deliberations about what the word Zion actually means in Scripture. It occurs some 163 times in the Bible, 156 of those in the Old Testament. And it mostly refers to an actual place. Now, we've got people from this church sending some photos on Facebook. They're currently in Jerusalem, or they were. And there it is. There's Zion. It's, it's an actual place. Psalm 80, 87, 2 to 3 says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious are the things spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. According to this passage, Zion is synonymous with the city of God and it is a place that God loves. The NLT translates the same passage. He loves the city of Jerusalem more than any other city in Israel. O city of God, what glorious things are said of you. So as I said, today if you are entering Jerusalem's old city via the Zion Gate at the Armenian quarter, that's Armenian, not Armenian, They don't have Arminians there. Um, And then if you look right behind you, you'll see 765 metres above sea level stands Mount Zion. There are street signs that point to Zion everywhere, much the same as we have street signs pointing to Brisbane. It's an actual place. However, as the Bible progresses, the word Zion expands in, in scope and takes on an additional theological and spiritual meaning. For example, in Isaiah 60, 14, um, in other places in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, Zion is also used figuratively to refer to Israel as the people of God. However, when we look in the New Testament, we see Zion is also used to refer to God's spiritual kingdom. The writer of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, Hebrews 12, 22. So then when God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, what is he actually referring to? Is he declaring Christ's spiritual reign from a heavenly Zion right now? Well, I think we can definitely say that right now, Christ rules spiritually over the hearts of all who know him by faith. That's true. Ever since God's saving work began, there has existed this spiritual element of the kingdom. And we also see in scriptures in, in uh, scriptures like Daniel 2.21, for instance, where it says, he controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. So Christ, though he's not physically present on the earth right now, he still fully controls the course of all world events in line with his perfect and uh, will and purpose. Now, I, I don't believe there'd be too much disagreement among us here about any of that. However, there is disagreement among Christians regarding whether or not there is also a temporal, worldly meaning here. Some Christians, probably most, believe that Christ will, at his second coming, rule in person from an earthly Zion, on the throne of David, over the nations and over the whole world during a literal 1,000-year millennium prior to the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. That's one view. Zechariah 8.3 says, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, my holy mountain. And Isaiah 2, verses 3b to 4. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their, plowsh their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. How wonderful will that be? So if the words here are taken on their plain meaning, then it all seems pretty straightforward. However, there are also Christians who believe passages like these are not to be taken literally, but instead symbolically and metaphorically. For example, when it says in Revelation chapter 20 that the saints will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years, this is not referring to a literal earthly reign or in a literal earthly millennium. And the term 1,000 years is not a literal 1,000 years, but a, a figurative expression for a non-specific, though very long, period of time. So Christians who subscribe to this view generally believe that the church, through the preaching of the gospel, will bring about a period of righteousness in the world. Christ will not be here physically, but working through his church he will triumph over the works of men and over the works of demons and it will at some indefinite time in the future bring about a temporal Christian kingdom and, and cover the entire earth. So his physical return will include at the end of this indefinite period of time. So in other words, we are living in a figurative millennium now. The church will continue to win ground until at some time in the future it has won all nations to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Now, I've only given a brief outline of these two positions and, and there is a third one um, that many people hold to. 
and we don't have time to deal with that today or, or the theological problems, to, to, to be fair, that exist with all three positions. But I would strongly recommend, this is really important, that regardless of which view you hold, that you personally study these views, personally study them, and land on your own informed position based on what the Bible says and not on what your favourite theologian says. Theologians haven't reached consensus about this for centuries, but it's very important that you know what you believe and why you believe it. Now, I said all that not, not to swing you to a particular view, but to say whatever your view is, it will still hold true that God has declared there is only one legitimate king who is forever enthroned in glory, and to him men shall come and shall be ashamed those who are incensed against him. Isaiah 45, 2 to 4. So far we've heard the nation speaking. We've heard God's response to their puny ambitions. And now we hear from the enthroned king, God's own son, who announces that the father has said to him that he will declare the decree. Now, when you hear the words, decree and declare today, I don't know about you, but I start to cringe because it's often in relation to the prosperity gospel and it's just you know, a load of nonsense. For example, you know, there are people who declare and decree according to Deuteronomy 28.12, I am a lender and not a borrower and they're in debt up to their necks. It just, it, it does, it's not that easy. It doesn't work, believe me. I looked up the website that, a website that said 57 powerful Bible declarations you can say over yourself. And sure enough, when you get to the end, it says, this part of content requires a contribution level. Say no more. When, when, when God declares, declares his decrees about his begotten son, Jesus Christ, he's putting the rebels on notice. He's saying, watch out. The son declares that the nations are his for the taking. His father will give them to him part of, as part of his inheritance. And this is certain to happen because God's decrees are infallible. You may recall the story in Matthew 4 where the devil took up Jesus on an exceedingly high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. What a cheap trick from Satan. The ends of the earth already belong to Jesus. God the Father has promised universal dominion to his son. And one day, all the earth will submit to his authority and his rule will extend from shore to shore. Isaiah 11, 9 to 10. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the, the sea, so the earth shall be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all nations. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Zechariah 11, verse 9 in the NAS. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. You know, in Australia, as well as the United Kingdom and Canada, King Charles is what we call a constitutional monarch. He exercises his authority in accordance with the constitution and can't make any decisions on his own. There are some things I'm sure that he'd love to do, but he can't because it'd be risky politically. 
So he acts in accordance with the government of the day. And basically, he does as the politicians direct him to do. But one day, God's own son will be the one and the only king over the entire earth. Isaiah 52, 15, which, which leads into Isaiah 53, you know, the most famous passage in the Old Testament about the Messiah. It says, And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless at his presence. They will see what they had not been told, and they will understand what they had not heard about. Human leaders in the highest places, the ones who usually do all the talking, will be utterly speechless as they behold Christ's unfolding power and glory, the magnitude of which they could not have ever imagined. Psalm 2 verse 9 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ will rule over the nations in a just way. But if they oppose him, he will smash them to pieces like pots of clay. In the ancient East, kings would participate in a ritual of breaking jars. The jars symbolized the enemy, the enemy army, and breaking them supposedly guaranteed the help of their gods in defeating them. But Jesus needs no such gimmicks. He smashes his enemies completely without any assistance from anyone. In Daniel chapter 2, the prophet looks into the future and he sees four earthly kingdoms yet to come, each having a set time of dominion before being replaced by a subsequent kingdom. But ultimately, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall, it shall break in pieces and consume all these previous kingdoms and it shall stand forever, Daniel 2 44. Jesus is the ultimate conqueror and his kingdom and his reign will be forever. Can I get an amen? amen. We're not the frozen chosen. You're allowed to yell out. <laughs> okay, amen to that. Now we've heard the nations speaking and God's response. We've heard God's son, the, from God's son, the enthroned king. And finally, we hear God's Holy Spirit speaking. And now, therefore, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Save, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Here we see the Holy Spirit speaks to kings and rulers of the earth. And at the end, he speaks to all people. Given that God the Son is victoriously enthroned in heaven and that on an appointed day he will judge the world in righteousness and, and reign as the only king over the entire earth, the wise thing to do is to surrender to him and to trust him. The Holy Spirit is still appealing to sinners today to repent and to turn to Christ, to Christ as the Saviour. He speaks first to kings and rulers, the world leaders, because they are accountable to God for the way that they govern the world. Romans 13 tells us that these leaders are appointed by God to bring judgment to those who practice evil and to praise those who do good. Sadly, though, as we've seen in recent history and throughout history, there have been many leaders who have done just the opposite. They have rewarded those who do evil and they have punished those who do what is right. Many leaders today have no qualms inciting people against God uh, and his moral laws when it suits their political purposes. Unregenerate people with a, are a soft touch 
for clever political leaders. In their ignorance, they follow the wisdom of the world, not knowing that God, in his wisdom, saw it that the world should never know him through human wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.21. They are blind when it comes to eternal truth. Now, they are like sheep for the slaughter for ruthless leaders who care only about their own re-election and tell people what their unregenerate hearts want them to know. The Holy Spirit warns the leaders to be wise and to be instructed because their grip on power is very tenuous. God can remove it immediately and without notice. In Daniel chapter 4, we read about the great king Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had made Babylon into a magnificent royal city. And one day he was walking on the flat roof of his palace and he looked out across the city and he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And Daniel 4, 31 to 33 says, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair was grown like eagles and feathers and his nails like birds' claws. And remember, King Nebuchadnezzar was not some constitutional political monarch. He, he was a real king. He could chop off your hair just because he didn't like the way you looked at him and be answerable to no one. But he was no match for God. The Holy Spirit warns the rulers of the earth, submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities in his anger, if his anger flies up, flares up in an instant, Psalm 2.12. It's interesting, you know, that there's one lesson from history that most earthly kings and rulers and judges and politicians never seem to learn. Their authority is delegated by God, and God can remove it in an instant. Psalm 2 continues with a promised blessing. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You know, it's no accident that nations with a, with a Judeo-Christian heritage have generally enjoyed incredible temporal blessings. Although Australia as a nation sadly is increasingly wanting to you know, hold God at arm's length, God is patient and he's kind and he's given us time to repent and to turn back to him. We're still a place that people desperately want to come to, even risking their lives to get here. A few years ago, I struck a conversation with an African man in Italy with the help of Google Translate. And when, when he found out I was from Australia, he, he just wouldn't let me go. He, he, he latched onto me. He was absolutely desperate to find out how to get to Australia, the land of promise. He pleaded with me to sponsor him to migrate here. And I had to explain quite firmly in the end, I can't even sponsor my own relatives from my native Croatia to come here unless they meet specific immigration requirements. And his disappointment was, was, was palpable. You know, he, I, I felt so sorry for him. Italy had accepted him as a refugee, but then didn't want to know him after that. You know, he was selling trinkets to stay alive to tourists. But going back to his Muslim country of origin, 
one that worships a false god was, was an even worse option for him. And I said, I just simply said I would pray for him. And he humbly bowed his head and tearily said, thank you. As I, want to fi- as I finish, I want to focus on the greatest blessing of all that any individual from any nation can receive. The blessing that comes through believing in Christ, God's royal son, and putting one's trust in him. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That promise still stands. 2 Corinthians 6.2b, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the age of grace. Heaven's door is still open and God is still calling sinners to repentance and to trust in Jesus as the Saviour. But the door will not always remain open. At the time of Noah, before God judged the entire world, he had provided an ark as a way of escape from the global flood. In Genesis 7, 15 to 16 in the NAS it reads, So they went into the ark of God by twos of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed the door behind him. Once God closed the door, there was no possibility of being spared from God's judgment. Only those in the ark would be saved. All flesh outside of the ark would drown. Noah's ark represents a way of escape from God's judgment. Today, Jesus is the way to escape from God's angry wrath against rebellious sinners. Judgment will come. He is still the saviour. And anyone who calls upon his name, in Romans 10, 12 to 13, it says, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. However, there is coming a time which no one except God the Father knows when the door will close on God's offer of forgiveness. The only thing that will remain then is God's judgment. It will be too, too late to ask for mercy, as it will be if you die between now and then. So put your trust in Christ today. Trust in Jesus today. Believe in him today. Repent of your sin. Come to him in faith. When he comes again, it won't be to save people, but to judge the world in righteousness. But if you trust him today, you won't have anything to fear. You will experience, along with all of God's people, what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not certain that Jesus is your saviour, then please, please come and talk to me afterwards. I would love to explain to you the way of salvation that is in Christ alone. And finally... As I draw to a close, we're seeing today a foolish attempt by governments, corporations, billionaires, lobbyists, aided by their political and media puppets, to control the world through their ungodly agendas. All such plans, let me assure you, on the authority of the Bible, are totally futile. They are certain to fail. For all their exuberant bluster, these puny mortals will find out sooner or later They cannot hide from God. God in his own time will rebuke them in his wrath and terrify them with his fierce fury. They will melt like wax before a blowtorch. Jesus Christ alone is the everlasting king.
Amen. He's sitting on his eternal throne and the nations are absolutely no threat to him. None whatsoever. They will see him return in blazing glory as we sang before. And he alone will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours. And yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.